Bullshit. The No BS Show is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash nobs. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. It's the No BS Marketing Show. I'm Dave Mastovich. Our guest today is Jonathan Potts, Vice President at Robert Morris University. Really excited to hear from Jonathan. But first, let's cut the bullshit. Just about everyone has seen or heard about the movie Wedding Crashers. Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson are two guys who crash weddings to meet women. Throughout the movie, they mention the rules of crashing created by this legendary infamous Chaz. Rule number one, never leave a fellow crasher behind. And throughout the movie, they keep talking about these rules. So you don't see Chaz or hear Chaz, but you hear about how he founded the Wedding Crashers and came up with the rules. Then there's a scene towards the latter third of the movie when we finally have the chance to meet Chaz. So Owen Wilson is down on his luck. He and Vince Vaughn have had a fight, and Owen Wilson wants to do some soul-searching and meet Chaz to see if maybe he can work with Chaz. Picture it. You know you've all seen it. He rings the doorbell. Chaz's mom comes to the door, and she looks like a woman from the 50s or 60s with the babushka, and there's a black-and-white TV playing cartoon. She opens the door. He comes in and she goes, Chaz, someone's there to see you. And he's waiting there. Owen's waiting at the bottom of the stairs. And at the top of the stairs, you see this silhouette. And this big, large figure comes walking down. And it's Chaz with nunchucks around his neck. And he basically says, you're lucky I didn't just nunchuck you. So now this, as this scene goes, Owen Wilson starts to talk to him. And he's a little bit uncomfortable. And Chaz starts telling him stories. And meanwhile, he says, would you like some meatloaf? And Owen Wilson says, no, no, I'm good. And they keep talking. And then Chaz starts to win Owen Wilson over. And he finally says, you know what? I'll have some meatloaf. And he goes, mom, the meatloaf. And you can all picture that. And then he says, I never know what she's doing. I never know what she's doing back there. And he actually pauses for the delivery to say back there. Well, this scene is on this show because that's what CEOs and CFOs think about the people in marketing. I never know what they're doing back there. And there are a lot of reasons why this perception exists. Some are due to marketers. Some are due to the CEOs and CFOs, non-marketers. But the biggest reason is marketers either don't have a system or they don't explain their system to senior leadership. And by system, I mean we need to have a process and we need to have a reason for doing what we do. And we need to convey that reason. And we need to begin with the end in mind so that we have clear KPIs, strategic KPIs, and tactical metrics. And that's a whole nother rant because KPIs and metrics aren't the same thing. Strategic KPIs and tactical metrics. Marketers need to develop, implement, and communicate about their specific go-to-market system built around and for the customer. That go-to-market system better have marketing research. Rule 71, by the way, research, research, research the wedding party. And when you're done researching, research some more. I believe that, take out the words wedding party. Your go-to-market system must have competitive intel and a fair and honest competitive assessment, market segmentation, and positioning. That go-to-market system better have 100-day activation plans. It better have a marketing roadmap with specific goals, timelines, and accountabilities. And of course, it better have messaging built around your big idea. 
But far too often, marketers really focus way too much on that creative part and do creative for creative's sake. And they're worried about that telling them about it again and again part of my definition of marketing. They're worried about that messaging. And that's why CEOs and CFOs think that you're like Chaz's mom and they never know what you're doing back there. So make sure senior management knows what you're doing back there. Cut the BS and focus on real marketing that improves your top and bottom line. Our guest today is Jonathan Potts, Vice President of Marketing and PR for Robert Morris University. He leads the university's marketing, media, and government relations, and executive communications. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. And I, uh, I have to admit, I love Wedding Crashers, and I think that was spot on. So you've lived it where there's been times where the CEO and CFO didn't understand and you had to convey what you do. And I think you know, it's interesting you talk about marketers getting caught up in the creative. I think part of the issue too is that other people who don't work in marketing and public relations think the creative is all that matters. And they think they can solve the problem with a clever idea or a great slogan or, God help us, a new logo. Um, and the reality is that there's a method to our madness. And we are, like them, focused on the strategic outcomes. Exactly. And it becomes frustrating for people that are purists. And so when I talk on the show, I think the part of the problem is our industry. I think there are a whole lot of people in our industry that are more focused on the creative. They really don't understand segmentation. They don't understand positioning. They, they, they feel that they don't need as much research. So part of the problem is on those peers of ours that aren't real marketers. Then the other part is people doing what you said. They think the creative is the shiny object and they think that they want that or they want the golf outing to be better this year. <laughs> so they think that that had something to do with marketing. And that's a tactical community relations thing that's important, but it's tactical and you need the strategic part. And then, and so it really just does perpetuate this whole thing of, I never know what she's doing back there. <laughs> It's perfect. So let's start with you walking us through your career path, your journey, because folks, if you're listening to this today, you're going to learn a lot about how to build a career, how to take calculated risks, and how to build your experience, because Jonathan has done such a unique set of things throughout his career. Let's go the whole way through your career yeah, path. There's probably more good luck than anything else, but hopefully I, I can teach it one, a thing or two. Well, I started in journalism, which, of course, you know, I think is a, a traditional way that a lot of people in PR, where they end up, so to speak, um, you know, by, by choice or otherwise. I was a reporter for seven years for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, um, which is now, you know, as a, as a print newspaper, is now, you know, defunct. Um, and, you know, it lives on in the web. But I, I covered um, most of the time there. I covered everything from breaking news to local government in the South Hills of Pittsburgh. I covered the Pittsburgh Public Schools for a couple of years, which was quite interesting. And I covered a little bit of higher education. Um, my final gig, probably about the last two months, I was actually the bureau chief um, in the Monroeville Bureau. And during that period, the trip was actually zoning um, the local section. So it was a different local section depending on what part of the county you lived in, which is actually a great idea. They, they probably should have kept doing that and stuck with it. Um, but I had a team of about five reporters and a few freelancers. So it was my first opportunity to, to manage people. Um, and so I really did like it. But, you know, I understood, you know, that things you didn't, weren't looking great for the newspaper industry. I liked writing a lot. I was never in love with reporting. Um, I liked it. There's certainly some great stories I sunk my teeth into. But it wasn't, I didn't have the emotional attachment to journalism that some people have, which I think was probably a, a blessing in a lot of ways. Um, and so my first position after that was at Carnegie Mellon University. 
Um, I was very familiar with the university. They knew me from my you know, time covering education in higher ed. And it just seemed like kind of a natural transition um, because you know so much of the job was writing about research, writing about the work of professors and students. So it seemed like a good way to kind of ease my way out of journalism. Well, talk a little bit about the journalism side and how it helped you when you did make that leap to Carnegie Mellon. Well, I mean, probably the, the thing that I still carry with me is the ability to write on deadline and write quickly, which is something I still need to do. Um, you know, part my, my job still involves crisis communications. We've been, you know, very lucky, knock on wood, that we've had anything too serious to deal with in either at Carnegie Mellon or my time at Robert Morris, but it certainly helps to be able to write quickly. Good news. Sometimes there's good breaking news uh-huh. that you get quickly. So I think the ability to, to think on my feet, to write quickly, you know, respond under pressure, I, I think that's that's been invaluable. Um, I also think one of the things that I, I heard uh, not long after I um, started working at Robert Morris, actually, I was at a conference, and there was a guy, I believe his name was Chester Finn, who's kind of a legendary PR guy, who said that when you work in public relations or marketing, sometimes you have to speak truth to power in an organization the same way that journalists are supposed to speak truth to power in their communities or you know to the to the broader world um sometimes you have to call out and speak uncomfortable truths to your coworkers, to the ceo and so i think uh being a journalist first has given me the fortitude to do that from time to time two big points there the first is I want to touch on writing because I believe writing becomes a muscle, if you will, and you have to keep at it. And where I get frustrated sometimes is I don't get the time to write as much as I would like because I'm leading a team and and I'm doing a lot of the marketing strategy for clients and doing the show and the No BS Marketing Platform. And I believe it's a muscle. So talk about how important it is to continually write and then talk about how that is when you're hiring someone because one of the biggest challenges when we hire an entry-level person is the writing. I mean, it really is. I mean, like you said, it's a muscle, and there's no shortcut to writing well than writing often. Um, you know, I, I I feel like one of the things I think was shocking to me when I left journalism, and I've had other former journalists who went into public relations say this is how surprised they are that there's so many educated people who don't write well, don't write clearly. Um, you know, and I, uh, uh, you know, treading on thin ice by saying this, but even some academics, sometimes they don't write, don't write well. But when you're a journalist, you're a reporter, you're writing, you need to write, um, you know, crisp, clean, can't be too long. Um, and so it really is a, a skill that you have to practice. I, I, I'm, you know, I write a lot still by necessity. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't have dozens of writers we can call mm-hmm. necessarily at the university. So, you know, there's a lot to do. And so I'm happy to take some of that on, even, you know, even at the level I'm at now. I, I don't think I'd ever want to be not writing um, where I would, you know, just, you know, uh, you know I don't want to say just managing, but I, I'm glad that I still have the opportunity to write and, and, and write often. Um, you know, I think if you have... You know, if you're in a position where you have the time and your employer allows it, I think freelance writing is a great way to go. Writing for magazines, you know, freelancing for newspapers, um, you know, keeping a blog, you know, using LinkedIn's publishing platform, you know, writing about your your profession. Um, and I think even, you know, even good old-fashioned journaling. I, it's funny, my daughter got me a nice little leather-bound journal for my birthday. Uh, and I decided I was going to write in it every night. Um, and... Uh, it's just, it's very, it clears your head for one thing. Uh, you can put your phone down, get the screen away. Um, but I don't think there's any substitute for writing often and reading, reading good writing I and mean, reading a variety of writing, you know, magazines, newspapers, books. Uh, I think that's very important. To our listeners, that is huge advice and it's spot on because one of the things I find with people that do write, 
sometimes they don't understand the target audience. I'll mention attorneys. Attorneys will write something that they're really writing for their clients, but they write it for other attorneys. They don't realize it. So they write it in legalese and the average person doesn't read legalese. Then you have CEOs that often write when they're supposed to be writing to their employees or to a target audience, they're writing almost for their peer group or their leadership team. And they don't understand that less is more. So I think that the talking about um, writing, practicing it, pushing it hard, clearing your thoughts, the journaling and doing it on a daily basis, I think is huge. I also think that for anyone that's early in their career, you just gave them like three or four words of wisdom that are huge because LinkedIn as a, as a vehicle, their own blog as a vehicle, wherever they can freelancing for someone for, and don't worry about the money. You might get 25 bucks for a piece that you wrote and it took you two or three or four hours, depending on your skill level. That might take someone like you or I have 45 minutes, but we've been at it so long. Somebody that's first writing might write that for three or four hours. That's great advice. The No BS Show is brought to you by audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30 day free trial at audibletrial.com slash no BS. Try a classic that I love. Wonder if Jonathan knows it. A book like The Fifth Discipline, The Art and Practice of the Learning Organization by Peter Senge. That book was awesome. And I just scanned back through it like 15, 20 years later, and it still has relevance. It was way ahead of its time. The Learning Organization by Peter Senge. You can download it for free today. Go to audibletrial.com slash no BS audibletrial.com slash no BS for your free audiobook. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. We're with Jonathan Potts, the VP of Marketing and PR for Robert Morris. And in case you haven't noticed, you can tell this guy is a pro. He's a writer, speaker, journalist background. His answers are on spot, on time, and he stops and lets silence go. I love it. I love it. You know, you don't ramble and you get to the point and you make the answer. You can tell you've had to do that many times on camera. So let's talk a little bit about during that path, you had the, uh, the, the Tribune review and the writing and the journalism and the reporting. And I liked what you said that you weren't so emotionally attached to journalism, and that enabled you to move into the corporate side. And that's a key point because there's a lot of journalists that are emotionally attached and they would call us evil. They would call you and I evil, right? Yeah, and I, and I think there's a lot of good that you can do in the world. And I, and I do think that, and I, I think there's a culture certainly in newspapers and journalism that treats it like a calling. And for some people it is. And we need people who feel that way about journalism and about reporting. Um, but I also think it kind of, some people become convinced that there's nothing else you can do of value, that there's nothing you can do in the corporate world of value. And I think even I probably internalize that to the extent because I chose to go to a, a university as opposed to um, a, a for-profit or heaven forbid, an agency. <laughs> yes, the evil side. <laughs> yeah, certainly, yeah, certainly I, I feel differently about agencies now. But, um, you know, I think that that's one thing is that there is there is still good you can do and there's still organizations whose missions you can love as much as you, know, you believed in the mission of the news organization or as journalism. So you end up going to Carnegie Mellon. I did. And then what happens to get the opportunity at Robert Morris? Because then you land at Robert Morris and you have had two or three promotions there. So, first of all, I, I did love my time at Carnegie Mellon, did a lot of great writing, did alumni communications, got to do a lot of things. Um, but, you know, they're pro I was at the point where just because the way things were structured, I probably wasn't going to advance or certainly not anytime soon. Um, I was looking for more challenges. Um, I hate to say I was bored because I was a kid, you know, if you say you're bored, you're, you know, your, your mother's like, well, go find something to do. Um, 
But my um, boss's boss, uh, Kyle Fisher, she had been my my, bo- my boss's boss at Carnegie Mellon. She had left, and she went to Robert Morris. And I saw the ad for director of public relations, Robert Morris. I knew Robert Morris a bit from my days as a reporter. I actually covered when Robert Morris became a, from went from being a college to a university. So I, I knew it was on the rise, and there was a lot of good things going on. And after a few weeks, the ad was still there, and my wife's like, why don't you apply for that job? And so I reached out to Kyle, and, and the rest pretty much is history. Um, we had a, a quick meeting in a, in a Starbucks and talked about my vision for, for you know, what I could do, um, some of the things I was trying uh, to, to do at Carnegie Mellon, um, some of the new, new approaches, and um, that was it. You know, that was uh, late 2007, and I've been there ever since. And then you became uh, vice president of one thing, but now you're... Vice President Moore. Yeah, so I, I um, before, um, so Kyle left actually in spring of 2016 to um, take on a similar role at Nova Southeastern University in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, so before, when, so when she, at the time she um, left, I was the Associate Vice President for Public Relations and Marketing. So I was sort of her second in command. Um, and so when she left, um, I, um, I have to say, you know, I flattered the university didn't, didn't look any further than, 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 you know, that guy, you know, they just, um, they gave me the nod. And so I was, um, you know, I was thrilled to, to get that opportunity. Um, and it's, it's been fantastic. It's been a great journey. You have a relatively new president who is just charismatic, experienced, uh, talented, you did a great job. You and your team did a fantastic job. But when he came aboard to uh, introduce him to our community, talk a little bit about that experience and and him as a leader. Well, I mean, you're only as good as your material in, in, in a lot of, uh, to a great extent. And, um, you know, so we're lucky that he had to have someone so engaging who has such a command of media, such a great sense of showmanship. Um, and he also happens to be a great leader who knows his stuff. Um, that, well, I think we did, a, I have to say, I do think we did a good job. I appreciate you saying that introducing him from the time we announced him as president in September, uh, 15, all the way up through his, um, first day in office through his inauguration, which was a fantastic event and, and ongoing. I, I think, um, he's embraced the Pittsburgh community. Um, I think he loves Pittsburgh. Um, he has really taken time to understand the corporate community here, the business community. And that's very important to Robert Morris because, uh, we take pride in being very professionally focused, um, and, and being, having great partnerships with the business community. Um, he's very, you know, he, he's relatively young. Um, he understands social media, which isn't to say someone older can't, um, the older I get, the, the, the more uh, adverse I get to those kinds of stereotypes, but he does have a great command of digital media and social media. Um, and just a fantastic communicator. Uh-huh. Well, talk about your mentors over the course of your career. Have you had a couple of people that really gave you inspiration, motivation, direction? Well, I, I mean, I mentioned um, a couple already, one by name, Kyle Fisher. I mean, I cannot say enough about the role Kyle has played um, in, in my career in terms of everything from, you know, showing me by example and, you know, deliberately through instruction how to manage, how to lead people, um, how to get projects done, manage budgets, um, how to manage up, you know, how, how, to, how to engage with you know, the people at the top of the organization. Um, and she's, she's still a mentor. We still connect, still talk on the phone, um, at, you know, every few weeks. Uh, I'm flattered that sometimes she'll ask my advice now, which is gratifying. Um, I, I, I still seek her counsel. Um, 
so I mean that she first and foremost she comes to mind. Um, you know, Teresa Thomas is the person who hired me when I left the Tribune Review, um, and Teresa, you know, kind of showed me the ropes in media relations. Um, you know, helped me understand how, how you know the university operated. Um, you know, and gave me confidence, for example, to, to pitch media, which is something that I think that um, is a little bit hard for a, re- a former reporter because we only remember the annoying, aggravating pitches. We don't remember the useful ones or the, the times a, a PR person was was actually helpful to you. Um, so she she was a great coach, um, and I think really encouraged me. And you know, when she knew that I was you know, looking and, and and wanted to do something more, I think she provided as much opportunity as she could, but she never tried to stand in my way. Um, and, and, and Teresa is also someone I still, I still t- stay in touch with and still connect with. Um, you know, I had to give a shout out to, to the person who's my, my boss now. Of course, I already mentioned Chris Howard, but my other boss is a guy named Jay Carson, who's our senior vice president for institutional advancement. Um, you know, I, I met with Jay probably a couple weeks after I had that first interview with Kyle, uh, also over coffee. Uh, I drink a lot of coffee, as you can tell. And, um, you know, I think Jay, I, you know, I, I think Jay, one of the things that Jay has always done, he's always said to me, are we helping our people? And you know, the people that work for you, uh, the people that report to you, are you helping them advance? Are you helping them meet their goals? And that's just that's a question that I ask myself a lot. And I think it's just been tremendously helpful as I've you know kind of ascended the ranks, as it were, of of leadership. Impressive contributors to you and heartfelt shout outs to them. Let's go in a slightly different direction to help our audience. Let's talk about when you were a BSer, when maybe you were a difficult employee, a tough boss, or maybe you didn't communicate as well internally or externally as you would have liked. What did you do to fix it, and what did you learn that could help our audience? You know, it's funny. Working in higher education, I, I meet a lot of great students, and I've hired a couple of recent Robert Morris grads, and I'm always amazed at the attitudes that they have on the job and, and you know the great work they do, um, all this these stereotypes about millennials, I, I just don't buy it. Um, I wish I could go back in time and have the attitude at my first job they did. I, I can think of a couple of times when I was a reporter when I just didn't think there was value in doing a story and I made no bones about it. And looking back, if I could look, look, you know, look through time at that, I would probably see a petulant, you know, man child. Um, you know, it's funny you talk about mentors or just, you know, people that influence you. One of the years later, one of the first commencement I went to at uh, Carnegie Mellon, or I'm sorry, Robert Morris, Norm Mitry, is our Robert Morris grad, CEO of Heritage Valley Health, talked about um, his first job, being asked to do something, and just how he was determined never to say no. And, um, you know, I wish I had learned that lesson sooner, but I, I guess I learned it in time. Um, I think that's a fantastic lesson. You know, I mentioned a few minutes ago about when you're in public relations or marketing or any strategic communications field, part of your job within your organization is to speak truth to power. And I, and I think, you know, when I, years ago, I can certainly remember a couple of times when I held my tongue, not when the organization was going to do something unethical or illegal, certainly, but when maybe a, a boss or a colleague had a different idea, a different tactic that I thought maybe was wasn't the right way to go and I you know because I they were more experienced or been in the organization longer I kind of didn't say so and, and and regretted it and so that's more of just kind of a constant vow that I'm going to respectfully um diplomatically sometimes say what I think is the right thing to do the right way to go listen to others not always stamp and get my way but I do think it's important that um you hold your organization to account um, particularly when you're in public relations, media relations, 
Um, you need to do that because someday it will come to a point where it is something that might be ethically questionable or that's going to hurt people, um, whether people understand it or not. And um, you need to be the person that throws your hands up and says, "Now yeah, let's stop, let's slow down. Hear more of my interview with Jonathan Potts on part two of his visit to the No BS Marketing Show. Visit MassSolutions.biz for show notes, plus additional marketing and messaging resources, like our No BS Marketing Weekly Update. Sign up and receive timely, valuable ideas to improve your marketing and transform your message. Again, visit MassSolutions.biz. Remember, ask yourself, what's the big idea? And build your story around the answer. It's all about bold solutions, no BS.